This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. I was there to, to serve the public. It didn't matter who they voted for, who I voted for. I was just there to serve We had people in our faces screaming and yelling, uh, blood for blood, uh, we're going to kill cops. Welcome to Diakonos, a Cops Calling. I'm your host, Anthony Weaver. And on this episode, we have part one of a two-part interview with retired Chief Jared Berkeheiser of the Lancaster City Bureau of Police. But before we get into that interview, I just wanted to take the time and really thank all of my supporters. I've been actually absolutely blown away by some of the feedback, comments, um, suggestions uh, that I've received from from both people who are on the job and people who are uh, not in law enforcement. And I just can't express how much I appreciate that and appreciate the support. Um, and how much it helps me know whether or not I'm getting after the mission of this podcast. Um, One of those missions being just supporting and lifting up those in law enforcement, those who do a job that is extremely difficult, extremely challenging, uh, extremely dangerous at times, and um, also just getting after the mission of being able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and speak passionately to that end. So I just wanted to thank all of you who have reached out uh, with very genuine uh, comments um, and even pointers and suggestions to make uh, this podcast better. I appreciate it and I can't thank you enough. So without further ado, let's jump into the very first part of my two-part interview with retired Chief Jared Berkeheiser. My guest is recently retired and decorated police chief. He is a third-generation police officer in his family and he has served for 30-plus years in law enforcement. Uh, This service began with four years as a United States Air Force security police officer, after which he was hired by the Lancaster City Bureau of Police in 1994. His service with Lancaster City Bureau of Police saw him hold assignments as a patrol officer, a member of the Lancaster City Drug Suppression Unit, the Criminal Investigation Division, and the Lancaster County Special Emergency Response Team. He was promoted through the ranks of the Lancaster City Bureau of Police and finished his career they are serving as chief from November 2017 until October 2020. Chief Jared Berkeheiser, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to have you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I see you You have the uh, the retirement beard coming in. I do. Um, I. Everyone wonders why, why do cops grow beards after they retire? So for me, well, first of all, my wife hates facial hair, um, but... Uh, I basically just said, you know what? I've been shaving religiously since I was in the military um, on a pretty much daily basis. I just want to let it go. And uh, she's accepting it for now. And I I pretty much, I basically said, until I get another job or at least a job interview, I'm growing the beard. And she's like, I'm, I'm, I'll deal with it. Yeah. So I, that, that's a thing. You just shave for so many years Uh, for you. It was 30 plus for me you know, 20. Um, but yeah, I always, 
liked and I lost all that hair on my head. So I was like, well, I can grow it on my face still, so I might as well do that. Um, but uh, yeah, so do you have any plans for it? Or are you just, do you trim it or do you just, are you just letting it go? I, I do trim it uh, okay. probably every like three days. Uh, just, you know, I don't know if I'm a little OCD that way, but as soon as I start seeing, you know, like these errant hairs growing out uh, completely away from my face, uh, it drives me nuts. So I got to kind of bring it back into um, what I think looks a little bit better. Right. Um, and it, and it's just, you know, it, I've never had one before. So caring for it is, is a little different. Yeah. I, I'm starting to read about beard oils and beard balms and this stuff is blowing my mind because I've never, I've never had to deal with it. And, uh, you know, my wife too, she, she, she's okay with it this length. I personally, what I would really like to do, uh, which, you know, will probably never happen is I would like to grow it very long and, and have three braids along the bottom. <laughs> and the reason most people ask me well, why, and I was like, well, just so people wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> right. I, you know, I, but, um, you know, it's because of, you know, I, I look at, uh, as I think as police officers at some point, my, like my wife didn't understand this until she became an ER nurse. Um, I would come home and she's like, well, how was your day? And I'd respond with, I really do not like people. Right. And and it's just because that's who we deal with every day, all day long. Right. And uh, at, at some point, I think you get uh, compassion fatigue. Right. And, and you're just, you know, because I basically said, you know, I think I was back in the drug unit when I, when I said this to her, that uh, I'd like to retire to my own island and then have a statue about the size of an Easter Island head of a middle finger. Um, just because I was just tired of dealing with people. Right. Um, you know, and some of that, you know, we joked about it. I mean, that was a joke, but she never understood what I was, why I felt that way until she started dealing with a lot of the same, uh, type of individuals, uh, coming into the hospital. Um, and then, then she got it. Yeah. So, Cause you do, it is fatiguing and, and I feel like you go through ebbs and flows in your, in your, uh, career also where you, you, uh, you get extremely cynical, extremely fatigued. And then, you know, maybe you have a change in what you're doing, um, and you gain some of that back or you just grow and mature as a person. But overall throughout your career, it is, it's just exhausting, like mentally, emotionally exhausting. And uh, because you're in these situations with people, uh, many of them because of bad decisions people have made. And I think I said in an earlier podcast that you're, they're very intimate situations too. And it's just exhausting because you're being brought into the, these really bad situations and you don't even have the time to process it fully. No, when you do, or you really don't have the time to process it and then you're going on to the next thing. Um, at least for us, anybody that works in a, in a busy, uh, city or urban setting, um, you know, you, I, I basically, the way I kind of describe it is we try and solve a problem in 10 to 15 minutes because we got to roll on to the next thing. Right. Um, and you really don't get time to process the last thing that you just dealt with and you're being thrust into something else, um, that could be just as bad or worse. Um, or it could be completely different. You know, going from 
a uh, violent domestic uh, that you backed up on, and now that you're clear because it's not your arrest or your charges, and now you're going to a simple theft call, and you still have all the emotion and everything that you just dealt with or you saw um, at that violent domestic, and now you're going to this, you know, what what turns out to be a you know like a stolen bike or something, you know, where you're like this is now what I'm going to spend my time on, and you really have don't have enough time to really reflect and process what you just dealt with. Um, right. So, and it's, you know, and then unfortunately you probably don't show as much compassion to that person that just had something stolen from them. Um, and you know, it probably, it may paint you or the police department in not such a great light because you're, because you, you're still dealing with what you, the call you were on 15 minutes ago. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, you may not be able to process any of that stuff. And then, you know, one of the things that my wife and I, uh, said early on when I first started this job is that I wouldn't keep anything from her. Um, and you know, I think that's what's helped us, uh, you know, stay together for 30 years. I think that's, yeah, I think that's really key. I know, you know, I, I've, I've talked to my wife about how, you know, I work with plenty of guys who do not tell their wives anything. Yeah. And, I, I get it to a certain extent. You're, you're maybe just trying to protect them from that level of stress and everything. But, uh, my wife and I had the same agreement. I pretty much, she knew everything that was going on, uh, at work, good, bad, ugly. Yep. I never went into like gory, gory detail, but, um, unless she asked me specific questions or, you know, but still I, I tried to leave a lot of that uh, stuff out of it. I mean, it was easier for her, um, to understand a lot of that once she became an ER nurse, uh, cause she was working traumas at Hershey medical center. And she, she would see a lot of the same things, um, that I saw as a patrol officer. Right. So, or even as a detective. So she, you know, it, it was better. I think for us, uh, we were our own therapists, I guess you could say yeah. like she could unload on me with what she saw, um, that day and, you know, I could unload on her. So it was certainly helpful. Yeah. And it, it's so, I think that's so in the most important part of it for me, it was, it was a way for me to just get this stuff out of my system. Yep. Um, because yeah, if, if I wouldn't have done that, I had, I had enough of a hard time, not, you know, by doing, I had enough hard time, even though I was doing that, um, had I not been doing that, I, I don't, I don't know how well I'd be. I mean, yeah. some people would say I'm not very well adjusted right now, but, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think it would have been worse had I not been having those sure. conversations. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, so retired life now, it's been several months, a couple months, um, you adjusting, you know, I'm adjusting. It's, uh. You know, it wasn't a, for me, it wasn't a planned retirement. Right. Um, I was looking at, you know, sticking around for maybe another three or four years. Uh, there were certainly things that I wanted to accomplish that I hadn't uh, accomplished yet. And, uh, and you know, I was kind of thrust into this retirement. So um, I had to deal with uh, not only that aspect of it, but also the aspect of, you know, there were certain individuals that were involved in my uh, early retirement, uh, that I thought were friends of mine, um, because we, we hung out socially, our families knew each other, 
Um, our spouses knew each other. And essentially what I felt like is, uh, you know, I got stabbed in the back uh, by uh, a few of those individuals um, for uh, what I consider probably political gain. Yeah. Um, you know, so that that took me a, a little bit of time to adjust to. Um, I, I think it brought me back around with uh, um, my faith uh, in God because uh, that's something I've struggled with throughout my career. Uh, just because of the level of evil that I've seen, um, it certainly made me question uh, my faith uh, from time to time. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I did have a, a pastor that, that would counsel me uh, from time to time. And unfortunately, he had, he passed away, uh, I think, about uh, two years ago. And uh, I didn't have that individual to turn to. Um, so I kind of just felt like I was uh, floating out there. Um, kind of on my own and, you know, just again, talking with my wife about some of that stuff, um, and with what's been happening, not only with my, uh, unprepared or, uh, my retirement, um, but also everything else that's happening, uh, in our country right now, uh, she has certainly turned to her faith a lot more. Um, and you know, that, that's certainly helped me. Um, and, you know, we met with a pastor a few weeks ago, and, you know, that was certainly helpful. Um, yeah. So it's just, uh, it's been a, it's been a journey. Yeah. And, you know, everybody I talk to, you know, thinks that or feels that, you know, there's something else out there for me that might be bigger than what I did at Lancaster. I don't know if that's accurate or not. Um, and right now it's, I've placed it in God's hands and, you know, he's going to show me, you know, the way to go. Um, I think, although it wasn't a planned retirement, I think in the now that I've been able to reflect on it more and talk to some other people, it was probably the best thing that, that could have happened to me because I've talked to a lot of people who basically said I, I didn't look healthy um, at, throughout that several-month period. Uh, even though I was working out almost every day, um, I just wasn't looking healthy, and I know you know, I was dealing with high blood pressure because I was having almost daily headaches, uh, that Tylenol and Motrin. I was taking both of them and they weren't even touching the headaches. So, um, you know, I, if that would have continued or that stress would have continued, you know, I could have easily, you know, been suffering from hypertension and had a stroke. Um, you know, so I think, although it wasn't the best way, uh, for me to exit, uh, I'm, I'm looking at it as it's all part of God's plan. Um, and he might've seen the road I was going down and it wasn't a good one and I'm supposed to be around for a while yet. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he is, he is faithful. Uh, even, you know, he's faithful to us even when we're not faithful to him. And, uh, so I think, you know, I just appreciate the attitude, um, that you have about it. Cause I, I mean, from the outside looking in and, and, when I say the outside looking in, you were my chief. I was, I was a sergeant on, uh, but in SEU, uh, when this happened, it, to me, everything appeared to be very, very politically motivated. And, um, when you, when you had to retire, um, I mean, it was obvious that it was not something that you wanted to do or that you were ready to do. Um, it was obvious that you were pressured to do it. 
and those sort of things. And, um, and I can't, I mean, the, the amount of stress you must have been under, because I know the amount of stress I was under just as a sergeant and, I, you know, I had five guys in my unit and the amount of stress I was under, um, you know, I was pretty pegged. And so I can't imagine the, the amount of stress uh, you were under. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I didn't really realize it until I was away from it. Um, you know, I, I was lucky if I was sleeping three to four hours a night. Um, and, uh, and that sleep was usually pretty disruptive. Uh, it wasn't like a sound sleep. Um, and, you know, which isn't healthy either. And, uh, you know, it was just everything that was going on. Like, it was almost like a perfect storm. Um, and, you know, I was chief for, roughly three years and it was not, I didn't realize until I was away from it, uh, all the stuff that happened in that three years, um, and what I was dealing with. Uh, and you know, now I'm adjusting. It's, uh, maybe I don't want to admit it, but I've watched more on Netflix than I ever have. Um, (laughs) uh, and, uh, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm looking for certain things. I'm looking for, you know, other jobs out there because, you know, I'm only 50 years old. I know I have more to give and, um, but I'm being very selective because yeah. I don't, one, I don't want to get into something I hate within six months. And two, I don't want to walk into a, another political nightmare. Um, just because, you know, I dealt with that, been there, done it. Right. Um, so can you just unpack a little bit what, what happened? So basically, you know, we were dealing with the protests over the summer. Uh, they started with the George Floyd incident. Um, yeah, well, let's just start with that. Can you just talk yeah. about the George Floyd incident a little bit and, and your sure. observations of that? Um, and actually, I'll, I'll start even a little bit before that because we were dealing with, you know, this COVID-19 pandemic mm-hmm. that back in, you know, the February, March timeframe, nobody knew a whole lot about it. And you know, it was um, reported that it could be the worst thing ever. Um, and we didn't know how, nobody knew any information. Nobody could tell us how to best prepare uh, to uh, stay safe from it. So, you know, for about two months or so, you know, I was working easily 14, 16 hour days. Um, you know, just trying to figure out as much as I could and keep everybody safe from that end of it, because how do you do police work without getting into contact with people? That's impossible. Um, you know, and I was making decisions that, you know, I had difficulty, uh, difficulty dealing with or sleeping, um, with, because in a sense, I felt like, uh, you know, I was making a a decision that only God should be making, um when I started reducing our responses to certain medical calls. And, um, you know, those are, those are somebody's loved ones that, you know, and we're usually there the first, um, because we're on the street all the time. So we're easily there the first. So, you know, going through that for about two months, uh, and then we get into, you know, what happened with George Floyd and, you know, this was the first time in my 30 year, uh, law enforcement career that the images that came out of that, uh, with officer, uh, Chauvin leaning on his or kneeling on, uh, George Floyd's neck, um, was steadfastly, you know, 
rebuke that level of force or that tactic was absolutely, you know, by the entire law enforcement community. They're like, that, that, that should have never happened. And, uh, and even though the entire law enforcement community did that, and you had chiefs across the United States and even in other countries uh, denouncing what happened there, we still saw uh, protests. And, you know, those protests during the day were mostly peaceful. They were individuals that were ex- exercising their First Amendment rights. Uh, but as soon as it became dark, things changed. Um, the people there changed and, and everything. And, you know, we started seeing that first in Minneapolis and then, you know, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Los Angeles and New York. And, and then it came to Lancaster. And what we saw or what I experienced uh, in Lancaster was, you know, we, we kind of looked at it in the beginning as, well, this is just going to be another one of these, you know, um, you know, I don't want to kind of do-gooder type of, you know, protests where people stood down at Penn Square, you know, with signs and, right. you know, as cars drove by, they honked and all that kind of stuff. And then out in front of our police station, we weren't expecting, you know, first of all, we had, this wasn't like a normal protest. Um, we didn't have individuals that reached out to us and said, Hey, you know, we're planning to have this protest on this date. Um, and then we could provide them with guidelines on how to do it safely. So people could exercise their first amendment rights and not have any contact with law enforcement. And we could make sure that they stayed safe. And then if any counter protesters showed up, we'd address them as well. None of that happened. These were all uh, like social media posts and events, and there was nobody willing to take ownership uh, over the protests, which was part of the plan. Yeah, I you know once once we were able to unpack all that other stuff, once it, you know now we saw how it all laid, how it all happened, and you know that was clearly part of the plan. Um, and then, but at that at that point in time we really weren't looking at it that way. And then, so we had the first one on a Saturday and that was a roving nightmare. Uh, Meaning, you know, there were people just going everywhere. Um, And, you know, I don't know if we ever got an exact count, but I would say there had to be at least a thousand people. Um, And the more they marched, the bigger it got because they got more people to join in. And it was one protest at Penn Square and another one at the police station and they merged and all we wanted to do was be able to block traffic from them and when they started marching they intentionally marched against traffic uh, to create that confrontation with motorists and the and the protesters and we tried to then we actually we were doing a pretty good job of shutting down leapfrogging ahead of them and shutting down a bunch of intersections Um, and then they just you know at the last minute they take a different turn Um, and then they started interfering with our traffic control um, they were doing, they were trying to do the traffic direction. Somehow they, you know, at different construction sites, they picked up orange cones and started throwing them around in front of cars and, and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, and, and after, I think it was, it might've been that night or maybe it was a couple days later, I had made a, uh, post on my social media, on my Facebook about what I had dealt with that day and what we all dealt with. Um, it felt like we were being overrun. Uh, we had people in our faces screaming and yelling, uh, blood for blood, uh, we're going to kill cops and, you know, all this nonsense. And, um, I was actually admonished by 
by my boss uh, for making that post. Um, and then Sunday, we know there was a planned, what they call a honk and drive post uh, protest by Lancaster Stands Up. And we actually had somebody from the mayor's office reach out because uh, Jess King has an in with Lancaster Stands Up. She knows uh, a number of those individuals. And she actually, from what we were told, she called them to try and get them to not do that uh, because we were concerned about another protest uh, that we expected uh, to be on foot in front of the police station. And, of course, Lancaster Stands Up said, no, we're going to do it anyway. Um, now, they, you know, they did tell their people, this is the route that we're going to drive. We want everybody to be respectful of traffic laws and all that kind of stuff. Um, but how do you control that? Right. So um, I, I gave uh, the shift lieutenant uh, some direction that day that if individuals started blocking the intersection, that we would start arresting them. Um, so at I was trying to relax on my deck, uh, just drink my coffee and just relax. And I was actually trying to read. Uh, I, think, I think it might have been the newspaper even. Uh, cause at that point we were still getting the, the actual, you know, paper copy of the Sunday I was going to say, that's just a bad decision to read yeah, the newspaper. <laughs> I know. But, you know, I, I, I just, you know, wanted to relax on my deck. It was a beautiful sunny day, you know, and, and I just wanted to ease into the day. And lo and behold, I get a phone call, uh, from the shift lieutenant and he told me, you know, they're, they're starting to block the intersection and they're really creating a traffic problem. And I said, okay, start locking them up, uh, give them the warnings and then start locking them up. And that's what he did. And I went in, turned on my radio and started listening to, uh, the traffic on the radio. And as soon as I heard him, uh, call for additional County units, that's when I decided to go into the police station. Uh, cause I knew if that's happening, knowing the shift Lieutenant, that's not something he does on a regular basis. Uh, so things must be escalating. And, uh, and they were, um, they, you know, what's kind of interesting is just about every arrest that they made, uh, that day, minimal force, if any, was used on, on the actual arrest. Um, we had to use pepper spray to keep the rest of the crowd back because they wanted to interfere with the arrest. Right. And, you know, it just went sideways from there. Um, more people started showing up. Uh, you know, because everybody's live streaming uh, on social media. So, you know, everybody and their brother is seeing this. Um, you know, we had uh, black and Hispanic officers that were on the line that day, and they were being screamed at, uh, just awful racist things um, by white suburban people. Uh, nobody I recognize from being in the city. Right. You know, um, and then I made a phone call, um, basically to the mayor and said, Hey, this is looking to get out of control. Um, call whatever community stakeholders you can clergy to try and get this under control because my way of getting it under control is going to be a lot more violent. Um, and we're going to use tear gas to get it under control. Uh, cause right now we're afraid we're going to get overrun. Because uh, we could see individuals in the in the crowd wearing body armor under their t-shirts, um, they were some of them were clearly armed. Right. 
Uh, one individual um, was wearing a full motorcycle helmet in the crowd. Uh, we knew Antifa was there because they were flying their flag. Um, so it uh, so that's what happened. And then she was able to get individuals down there to at least calm the tone a little bit uh, for us to get the street open for a little while. Um, and we had we had several uh, troopers there, um, state troopers there, county officers there to back us up. And if we needed to or wanted to, um, we could have definitely um, unleashed some controlled force, um, tear gas, and some other stuff. Right. Um, but I was concerned with what happened in other cities when that happened. Um, I didn't want our entire downtown infrastructure to be damaged or burned, uh, so we tried to wait it out. Uh, unbeknownst to me, and 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 I didn't find this out until afterwards, is, uh, you know, we, we then ended up babysitting this protest for a week. Um, and the reason that happened was the mayor gave him the street in front of our police station. I'll, I'll never forget that. And without, you know, there was, there was no prior discussion. Uh, you know, I, I think she was just caught up in the moment, um, not making excuses or anything. It was just, I don't, you know, and it, I've had different people tell me that every time she spoke, not only that day, but then at the press conference that they had on Friday, she sounded more like one of the protesters and not like an elected official that was in charge of the city. Um, and, you know, so then we had to, we had to babysit this, this protest for a week long. And, um, and you know, it, when it got dark, it became more of like a block party than a protest. And, you know, I, I was looking to see if they were going to acknowledge George Floyd's funeral uh, throughout the week, and they did nothing to reflect on his funeral. Um, you know, there were other protests throughout the country that had TV set up and they live streamed, you know, the, the funeral service. Um, these individuals out in front of our police station did none of that. And, you know, I think some of that was, well, a lot of it was they were in it for their own gain, Couple of the, two of the individuals weren't even from the state of Pennsylvania, right? Um, you know, so yeah, it just turned into this complete and utter, you know, garbage dump <laughs> or dumpster fire. Uh, you know, just it was, it was nothing I've ever seen before in my in my career. We had we've had many riots before in Lancaster, and uh, this was just completely different and the dynamic was different we even tried to meet with individuals who um, emerged as leaders in this movement and they didn't have a rational thought between them on what they wanted or you know actually a couple of them couldn't even speak to what they wanted related to Lancaster because they weren't from here right you know they they thought we controlled the prison well, clearly we don't. They thought we controlled, you know, one of the protesters wanted more uh, STEM classes in school or in uh, after-school programs. Well, that's not something the police department can control. Right. Um, so it was it was really strange. So trying to sit with them in a meeting and get some kind of resolution was next to impossible. Right. And I think, um, to me... It it just all it appeared that what they wanted, what they really wanted, 
was to be able to do whatever they wanted to do. Um, this idea that, you know, defund the police, get rid of the police, that, that was kind of like ran sure through the crowd. Yeah, and it wasn't until, uh, I think what, uh, what, what I found out later on, and it was just because, you know, there was so much information available online mm-hmm. that uh, an individual that was involved in the uh, Minneapolis uh, police station takeover um, where they burned the station, you know, they actually did their own after action uh, report. And they, you know, they laid out in that information that they shared how they did it real time, what they were doing on social media. And when I read that and saw that they created a base of operations, almost a headquarters for the protesters to provide them water and snacks and other food and uh, first aid and all that kind of stuff, I'm like, well, that's exactly what happened here in Lancaster. Within a half a block from the police station in the 100 block of North Prince Street, they did the same thing. Right. They created a headquarters to resupply their protesters. And then they had, you know, uh, to this day, and especially with what happened after our officer-involved shooting, um, to this day I still believe they were trying to take over our police station um, throughout that week period. It's just we, I think we did a good job, and I know it was difficult at times. Uh, We did a good job with uh, connecting with some of the individuals that were, sort of involved, but not as committed to a uh, violent takeover as some of the other ones were. And they, they actually helped keep things under control. You know, we, we sent officers out to p- speak to people. Now, again, you know, we saw that that crowd changed as soon as it got dark. So that was impossible to do it after, after dark and it wasn't safe for us to do it. But I, I, to this day, I believe absolutely they were looking at a way throughout that week time period a way to take over a police station. Which is also why it, it just became extremely dangerous too. Like yeah. just, just letting them do that. And, um, well, you, th- you affect, we're a 24 hour, seven day a week. Operation. You're affecting how we operate. Yeah, absolutely. You, you affected how our officers could get into work, leave work to go home. Right. Um, they were constantly harassed throughout that, that week period. And even after, I mean, all summer long, they were harassed walking to, you know, their parking garage to go home. Right. And and it affected, too, just even how we operated as a police department, getting officers, uniformed officers in cruisers yep. back and forth, getting prisoners in. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and it, I think that was all they... It was part of it. That was all part of their plan. And, right. And unfortunately, you know, the, the politicians um, allowed that to happen. And they right. didn't do a good enough job at controlling some of that narrative. Um, and you know, it comes down to, you know, a city our size, other than the mayor, all the other politicians that sit on city council are part time. Um, you know, the other thing that we had working against us is you didn't have a lot of leadership there from the, uh, from the black or Hispanic community. Um, and, and because they were concerned about the pandemic, you know, it, it was hitting their communities harder than, than anybody else. So they were um, absolutely concerned about the, the, uh, the pandemic and you didn't have uh, that voice of reason and people with life experience to help direct them uh, or provide them assistance in, in their movement. 
Um, and, and that, that was part of the problem. And, and you even had, I even had Reverend Forbes, you know, he even said that, you know, that's one, and, and Reverend Bailey, um, who, you know, isn't exactly a fan of the, of the Lancaster Bureau of Police, but, you know, he said that, you know, the, the problem is we're not leading these young people on how to do this the right way, you know, and his explanation was we, we can't do it this way. We have to do it at the voting booth. Right. You know, that's, that's how you get change to happen. Um, so, you know, we were dealing with all that. It, it was essentially, you know, kind of what, uh, the word I used for what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. I mean, it was a perfect storm of different things that came together at one time. Um, and you know, it was also, a, an election year. Right. So, and, and, um, uh, the, the, the disgust, one of the disgusting parts about the whole thing to me, and you, you touched on it was when the mayor, you know, stood on the police station steps and, and told the crowd, we want you to have the street. Um, that was completely demoralizing for, for the officers in the department because we, she was encouraging people to break the law. And then um, the other demoralizing thing was we had a member of city council who was involved in these, in these protests, um, claimed that he was trying to help, but he was kind of always down at the safe house. Um, every time he spoke to the crowd, he would whip the crowd up talking about revolution and those types of things. Yep. And, um, I mean, he's, he's an elected official on city sure. council in in the city. And, and that was, um, yeah, it's kind of, uh, you know, politicians have to use their words anybody who, who is recognized as a dynamic speaker, they have to use their words very carefully. Um, anytime you start talking about revolution, uh, revolution means bloodshed. Um, that's what happened in the revolutionary war in right. this country, you know? So when you start using words like this is our revolution and you know, that kind of stuff, it, you know, those are words that, you know, I don't care who says them, you can be Democrat, Republican, independent, or just, you know, a dynamic speaker. But anytime you start using words like that, um, it can whip anybody into a frenzy that's leaning that one way or the other. Right. Um, it's just not a good thing, especially from people who are supposed to be leaders in the community. Right. And I remember, you know, being in full gear, um, in one of the stairwells of the police station, we were a, I was part of a team at that point. They were like, a, um, because you were out in the crowd and I believe, you know, the mayor was and some other people that we were concerned about, uh, you were addressing the crowd. I don't remember what day that was. Um, but you know, this, uh, you know, uh, city council member gets on stage and, uh, drops the F bomb, talks about revolution and the, the crowd just went crazy. And, and, and I'm, we're, we're hearing this live. I I just couldn't believe it. And then on top of that, no, that's getting reported in the news. The right. only thing that's getting reported in the news is, you know, how we're terrible and, and these protesters are right. doing nothing wrong. Right. Um, and uh, so you had that going on. And, and uh, yeah, it was just a, a, a perfect storm. And then just to go back a little bit to the George Floyd incident, I think what you said was important, how the George Floyd incident, you know, was, was roundly, um, you know, just pretty much i I don't remember hearing any law enforcement official of any rank saying that was okay right um the 
the thing that bothered me about that is it was immediately turned into a race issue. And people that asked me about it, um, I would tell them it very well could be a race issue, mm-hmm. uh, but we don't, we don't know. Uh, we don't know that it is, uh, but the press and these uh, social justice groups and Black Lives Matter, and they jumped on it and they really turned it into a race issue before we even knew if it was a race issue. And, and now, quite frankly, as more uh, video comes out and more evidence comes out uh, in that investigation, I mean, I think you're hard pressed to be able to prove that there was a racial aspect to it. You can prove just bad training bad intent, you know, a lot of other things, but I don't know how you're going to be able to prove the the race side of it. Yeah. It's, you know, you gotta be, it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I think, you know, for us as municipal police officers, you know, I don't know, I can't remember my 26 and a half year career in Lancaster where we actually brought an ethnic intimidation charge because it's, it has to meet certain criteria. Um, and it has to meet, you know, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent. I mean, that, that's how the law was written. Um, and it has to get to a certain level, and you need, um, you know, proof beyond a reasonable doubt um, that uh, that it was because of somebody's ethnicity um, or, you know, gender or, you know, sexual orientation to be able to bring, bring a charge like that. Um, so to, you know, to jump from you know, the, the force that was used and turn it immediately into a race issue, um, I think is a a pretty quick, uh, judgment. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I know people hate to hear it, but you got to let the investigation play out. Um, there's certain ways to do things. Um, and you got to follow the evidence. And if the evidence isn't there, it's not there. Right. And I think it's always a dangerous precedent to, to start assigning motives mm-hmm. and judging people's hearts and minds. I mean, that's, yeah, that's basically the job of God almighty. Right. And you know, we as human beings and we all do it. Sure. Um, but to look at someone and be like, Oh, they're a racist. It, it's just not helpful. They, he, uh, officer Chauvin, uh, he may be a racist. I, I don't know him. Right. Um, but to just see that video and just decide, well, we have one skin color here and another skin color here. We're just going to make it a race issue. And then we're going to use it to drive a narrative. And then we're going to um, completely politicize it in these police departments. And we saw it across the country where, you know, police departments were, were being told to stand down left and right yep. because of political pressure. And um, that's a really scary and concerning thing because even though law enforcement is an arm of the government, uh, we we have to not play politics. We enforce the law. Sure. That's what we do. So, you know, when I went to the FBI Academy, you know, for 10 and a half weeks, um, it's their command school. Um, we had to, one of the mandatory uh, field trips we had to make uh, was to the Holocaust Museum. So we go to the Holocaust Museum and, you know, we're assigned a... A tour guide who's actually a survivor of the Holocaust. And the first place they take us to is a photograph of a local police officer. I believe it was a Berlin police officer standing right next to an SS trooper. And 
the example there is this is what happens when local government does not do their job and allows this type of thing to happen and doesn't question it. Um, so to, and so that's something you never want to see in the United States. You never want to see your police department become politicized like that because it doesn't turn out well. Um, you know, just look at what happened with the Holocaust. I mean, it's not, you know, I don't think that's going to happen in the United States, but look what happens when you politicize, uh, a movement or anything and you involve local government in that and the you know enforcement arm of local government is your police department you know i always approach my job as a police officer as apolitical right you, know, you have I, to i yeah i was there to to serve the public it didn't matter who they voted for who i voted for i was just there to serve the public and do the best job i could to help people you know because that's what we that's why we take this job um and so, you know, for, you know, I didn't see really a lot of politics as a patrol officer. Um, started seeing a little bit more of it when uh, I, you know, became uh, a union official, you know, was president of the union and, and that kind of stuff. So I, I saw more politics there. And, you know, as I gained rank, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, and of course, chief, that's when you start seeing more and more politics uh, come into play. But uh, you know, one of the things that I always wanted to do as the chief was trying to be that, that buffer between the politics and the officer on the street because that officer on the street shouldn't have to worry about that. Right. Um, because they have a job to do. Um, they have a difficult job to do and they don't need to worry about how politics are going to drive what their next thought is because it could get somebody hurt. Um, so, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, I, I think we... We are in uh, a dangerous time right now in this country. And, right. you know, I feel really sorry or not sorry for, I feel bad for um, that officer that's that's pushing a cruiser right now. Yeah, I I have nothing but respect uh, for, for the officers that are doing that because, like you said, um, I think any good leader regardless of what rank they are, is going to try to push back against and be that buffer yep. so that his, his men and women that are under, under him um, can do their job without worrying about it. Right. The problem is now it's just it's, it's so rampant that yep. your, your guys on the street and gals on the street, um, how can they not think about it? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, they're inundated with it. Right. So, you know, mainstream media, social media, you know, I, I always tried to tell them, tell everybody, you know, just if you can't get off of social media, don't, you know, because either that or, you know, whatever groups that you're because, you know, I, I saw it for myself. You know, I, I I was following all kinds of different pro law enforcement groups and I was being inundated by bad information, you know, just awful stuff to read and look at on a daily basis besides, you know, what we were dealing with through the mainstream media. Um you know, officers being shot, officers being killed in the line of duty, you know, all that, all that information. From the pro. From the pro law to, enforcement side. As training. Or, yeah, yeah, as training or as just to get the word out because, you know, the mainstream media doesn't carry it. You right. know, just yesterday, you know, a Toledo police officer was killed in the line of duty. Mm -hmm. uh, not that I watch a whole lot of mainstream media uh, anymore, but I didn't see it mentioned at all uh, in the mainstream media. So, 
you know, they're still talking about the, the riot at the Capitol. Right. And, and I also, um, I stopped, I, I mean, I was always on like police one and, yep. and, uh, following all these stories and watching these videos and, um, just trying to stay sharp tactically. But yeah, towards the end of my career, it got to a point where I, I was like, these videos are not helping me, yeah. my mental health. Like, I mean, you want to stay connect, like you want to, you want to stay connected, but you, you want the information to make yourself a better officer, a better supervisor. But you know, with the deluge of information that, that is at fingertips right now. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just a little crazy. Yeah. And it also wasn't helping my hypervigilance. No. <laughs> that I was, that, you know, over the last like several no. years that I was on the job that I was dealing with, it, it, I realized it was not helping that at all. And, no. um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like that getting that balance to be able to watch that stuff and, and, and get that training, but not yeah get it to the point where it's affecting yeah, you. At some point you got to turn it off. You right. Know, you, you just got to get away from it. Right. So you've been, you've been kind of serving people for 30 years and correct me if I'm wrong. Were you, were you a uh, volunteer firefighter at some point? Yeah. I started as a junior firefighter. Um, I think like 14. Okay. At, as soon as I could. Uh, and, and where the, was that at? Wommelsdorf. And that's where you grew up, That's right? where I grew up, yep. It's Berks County. And describe that town. Uh, it's a town of about uh, two to 3,000 people. Okay. Um, now it's, you know, the dynamic of the town has changed. They're, they're seeing a lot of uh, single-family homes turning into rental properties and, you know, being split up into apartments. Same kind of thing that we, we saw in Lancaster. Um, but it's a, you know, it's, it's a bedroom community or it was, uh, surrounded by farmland. Um, the next closest town was about five minutes away. Um, we right outside of town, um, was the Bethany children's home, uh, which is, you know, it was a, an orphanage at one time and then it turned into a juvenile placement, uh, facility cause I had, um, family, I guess it would be like a second cousin and her husband, uh, they, they actually were house parents at Bethany children's home for years. Okay. Uh, and I went to school with a lot of the kids that, that were, uh, at Bethany children's home, okay. uh, which Bethany children's home was a diverse, you know, population. So, um, yeah. And that's, that's actually where, uh, my dad, and my grandfather were police officers in Wilmersdorf. in Wilmersdorf. My grandfather was actually, uh, a special, what they called a special police officer, reserve police officer. So he was a volunteer. Um, I remember, you know, phone books when we actually used to get phone books, uh, they had vinyl covers to them that were, that was basically bought ad space. So it was to protect the phone book. And on the inside of that vinyl cover, it had my grandfather's name and actually a couple of his brother's names. Uh, and they all served either in the Korean war, world war two, uh, my grandfather served in World War II, um, and their home phone numbers to wow. be called as, you know, reserve or special police. So um, they were actually, uh, a lot of them were fire police with the fire company to, you know, to direct traffic. And then when they had special events like carnivals and stuff like that, they they would arm up and, you know. So th that's what I was going to ask you. They were armed then and everything? Yeah. Did they have any training they went through? Or they no. pretty much? <laughs> no. No. And actually, if I remember right, when my when my dad went to the police academy, he actually started work 
as a police officer before he even went to the police academy. Okay. And because he started so early in his career uh, working part-time, um, he could have been grandfathered in and not had to attend the police academy because he had already been working for, I think, a few years. Um, but he wanted the training and he wanted the, the education, so he went to the police academy. So your dad then, um, how big was the police department, like the paid uh, members of the police the department? The paid members of the police department. So when my dad became a full-time police officer, they no longer had the, the reserve police officers because okay. Pennsylvania changed the law and you know they didn't allow that anymore. Um, and so I think they had, at that point in time, I want to say three full-time officers and the rest were part-time. Um, and they had almost 24-hour coverage uh, of the borough. And the police chief, I considered him like an uncle. Like he would always stop by the house. Um, you know, I would climb up on his lap as a little kid uh, and sit there. And, you know, I always wanted to listen to, the sh you know, them talk shop. Uh, but after a while, they they'd kick me out of the room cause they were going to talk about stuff that they didn't want me to hear. Right. Um, stuff that was going on in town. And, uh, you know, so I was around it my entire life growing up. So it was, you know, I, my mom gave me a picture, uh, when I turned 40, it was, my wife included in my 40th birthday party of me sitting on a big wheel at like three years old wearing a police hat. Uh, so I've wanted to be a police officer, you know, as far back as I can remember. Okay. Did your dad ever try to talk you out of it? No. No, he really didn't say a whole lot about it. My dad, uh, he left the job after about 12 years. Okay. Um, and I think it was just uh, dealing with some of the political stuff he was dealing with. You know, because in a smaller jurisdiction, everybody thinks that they're your boss. Uh, members of borough council and, you know, that kind of stuff. They just think that they can direct you to do whatever. Um, and I think he was tired of that. Plus, you know, uh, he was still dealing with, and I think, you know, I think he's better today. I mean, just dealing with PTSD stuff from Vietnam. Hmm. And, uh, and then we had a, uh, a murder suicide in town that, uh, involved people that we knew, uh, people that grew up right across the street from us. And, uh, you know, my family watched, uh, the daughter grow up, you know, she was the victim of the homicide, watched her grow up throughout the years. Uh, and I just think that hit way too close to home for him. And it was shortly after that, that he resigned. Does he ever talk about that stuff? Or is he, is he like that generation? Just keep it close yeah, to the he, chest. Yeah, he and... keeps it close to the chest. Like, uh, you know, the, I think he's opening up more, uh, as he gets older. Uh, I know he misses, uh, he misses the police work because uh, after I became a sergeant, both my parents came in and did a ride along with me. Uh, and my dad thought it was the greatest thing ever. Okay. Uh, and uh, my mom hated it. Uh, she hated how fast I was driving up like St. Joseph Street, you know, lights and siren. Did they come in at the same time? Yeah, they came in at the same time and rode with me. Um, so that was kind of crazy. Was it a caged car? No, it was a. Okay. Uh, what car did I have? I had the. Uh, I think it was the. Uh, Chevy Tahoe okay. that I had out. Uh, so my next question was going to be if it was a cage car. Who yeah. Rode in the back? No, it wasn't a cage car. And, you know, the they got they, they they got to see me get in a foot pursuit and tackle a dude that had a bunch of 
heroin and crack on him uh, in front of the McDonald's on West King Street. And, That's awesome. You know, my dad thought that was cool. Right. Uh, so he wanted to come in for another ride along at some point, but it just never happened. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, he, uh, he really didn't try and talk me out of it. And um, even when I was going in the military, uh, he really didn't talk me out of the military either. Uh, the only thing he said to me, because I, I was originally going to sign up for the Army. Because my grandfather was in the army uh, during the Battle of the Bulge, wow. um, and you know he was in the Ardennes Forest and all that. Wow! And uh, my dad was in the army uh, when he was in the in Vietnam, and he served uh, a year in the Mekong Delta from '68 to '69. So I wanted to go in the army. I wanted to be a third generation, you know, in the army. And uh, so I was getting ready to to go down to the recruiter's office for the last time to put my final signature on the paperwork. My parents had already signed because I was, I was signing up, you know, at 17. And uh, he just said to me, hey, kid, uh, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Uh, but when you go down there, before you sign those papers, ask a lot of questions. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, look, the Army didn't treat me so well when I was in there. I'm just telling you, ask a lot of questions. And... So I go down and I start talking to the recruiter and he's like, Hey, you're right. You know, the recruiter's gung ho, you know, right. Kind of like your worst used car salesman. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, okay, you know, cause I wanted to be a cop. That's what I wanted to be. And I knew the military, I could be a cop in the military at 18. There's no, no place in, in Pennsylvania that's going to hire you right out of high school to be a police officer. That's just not going to happen. Right. So I figured this way I'd get discipline training and, you know, experience. And uh, I said, so you're going to guarantee that I'm going to be an MP. He goes, well, we're going to guarantee you the training to be an MP. And I'm like, wait a minute. So you're going to guarantee me the training. Yep, absolutely. You sign here. We're going to guarantee the training. You're going to go in at this MOS and for MP. I said, okay. So are you going to guarantee me I'm going to be an MP? Well, I, I can't really guarantee you that. And I'm like, what do you mean? And then he started pulling out his photo albums for when he was stationed in Germany. And, you know, he's like, hey, look at these. Let me get some more paperwork for you to read and stuff like that. And he, of course, opens these photo albums to a bunch of topless women, you know, swimming and sunbathing in Germany. And, you know, and uh, trying to do this, look over here, look over here, don't look here. Right. Kind of trick. And I'm like, wait a minute, dude. You're, you're telling me you're going to guarantee me the training as an MP, but you can't guarantee me that's what I'm going to do. He's like, well... So in the Army, you're infantry first. So that's the slot you're going to fill first. And if there's a spot for you as military police at whatever post they assign you to, then you're going to be an MP. I said, okay. So if there's no spot to be an MP, then what? Well, they could, they'll put you where they need to put you. I said, so I could be a cook. He's like, well, that could happen. I'm like, we're done talking. <laughs> so... And all the all the services uh, were in the same building. Um, this was in Reading, and so I left that office and I started walking across the hall to the Marine Corps. Um, you know, love the Marine Corps. I got a lot of friends who are Marines, um, but they were already yelling and screaming at a kid for not making his weight. And I'm like, yeah, I don't need none of that. Uh, walked down to the Navy. The Navy's like, well, we don't have law enforcement until you're in for six years. Uh, we have the shore patrol, but that's a duty that you hold, at least back then it was. Um, so I, I landed at the Air Force, and they're like, yep, we can guarantee you to be security police. So 
So that's what I did. What was that like? Did you just basically work a post then? Yeah, I, uh, well. Or were you like patrolling? No, I was working, I was working the the missile field in Montana. So uh, back then they had the the Strategic Air Command. So everything nuclear was assigned to the Strategic Air Command. And uh, the vast majority of SAC bases are northern tier. So I ended up in Montana, and back then there were uh, 150, I think, 150 to 200 missiles, uh, nuclear missiles in the ground in Montana. Wow. Um, so that's what I did. I worked out in the missile field. Um, I would go out for four days uh, and respond to alarms at missile silos. Um, so I stayed at a launch control facility, which was about maybe three to four acres in size uh, with a building with an on-site cook. We had satellite TV, uh, pool tables for, you know, uh, weightlifting equipment, um, snow removal equipment because, you know, it snows in Montana and sometimes a lot. Right. Uh, and we had a uh, armored uh, vehicle and uh, our alarm response vehicle was a uh, was a 4x4 like a Blazer or Bronco or a Dodge Power Wagon. Um, that's what we used for a two-man team to respond to a missile silo. So every launch control facility, and that's the facility that had two officers that was that were three stories underground, uh, and they were in charge of the launching of the missiles, you know, just like you saw in, in movies. Right. And uh, like war games or the day after, you know, it was – and the what they, what they sat in was like a capsule that was suspended – by shock, so it was supposed to take a be able to take a direct hit from a nuclear weapon. So each launch control facility had ten missile silos assigned to it, and all those missile silos are alarmed. And if the alarm went off, we they sent two of us out uh, with M16s to check the alarm to see what breached the alarm. You weren't you wouldn't go out and actively patrol the area. You nope. were just only you were like purely a, like a response. And yep. I'm guessing you had you needed like high level clearance to even be working there. Yeah, right? we needed uh we needed a secret clearance and then we also had they called it a personal personnel reliability program. Uh that was just an extra certification that we had to make sure everybody was acting in the right mindset uh around that kind of stuff. Did you ever find cuz I'm I'm guessing this whole area was secure. Mm-hmm. Did you ever find anyone in the missile field? No. A lot of times the uh, the alarms were set off by weather, uh, animals, uh, prairie dogs or gophers uh, were our worst enemy. Uh, we, we had to, if they were on, if we found them on the missile silo site, we had to kill them because they would just keep setting the alarm off. So the way it was explained to me is just like the federal government, they don't buy the whole thing. They don't buy the whole system uh, and spend the money up front so they don't have to spend it later on. Uh, the alarm system, the way it was explained to me uh, by the officers that, that monitored the uh, missile sites, is that it was a kind of a, an electronic umbrella that was put over the, the missile silo site. Okay. And if they would have bought the entire system, they would have been able to tell the height of the item that broke that electronic umbrella. And they never got that. Uh, that, that is classic government right there. Yeah. Just uh, 
So they sent, you know, essentially what, what we re- referred to ourselves as were the armed guinea pigs that went out. And, you know, if somebody was there that wanted to do us harm, you know, that's how they would find out. Right. Now, they did have missile sites that were um, shot up, intentionally vandalized or uh, spray painted, you know, um, anti-nuke or war protesters do that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, we never in my career found anybody on a missile site. So what were your rules of engagement? Like if you would go out and you'd see someone messing with a missile site, what were you allowed to do? So they were um, in an unauthorized area. And just like the signs say on uh, areas like that, um, if you don't follow commands, deadly force could be used. Um, So, you know, we had to clearly there, there needed to be some kind of threat, but if they were trying to do some kind of damage to where we could articulate that we thought they were trying to gain access to a nuclear missile. Um, so you, basically you had to be able to articulate right. why you were, you can't just go yeah, out there and just, kill on site yeah, or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. Cause you know, we practiced, you know, different scenarios. Cause that's the, that's the other thing that we did. We had, you know, just like in police work, you know, we had supervisors, the supervisors would set up exercises for us. Um, and we didn't know it was an exercise. So we would respond to the situation and, you know, we were looking for, when we checked the missile site, we were looking for personnel, but then our secondary search was looking for explosive devices or anything else that, that looked out of the ordinary. Um, so that's what we would do. Wow. And so did you do that? How, how many years did you do that? Four Four years. Four years. Yeah. And what was the training like to, to do that? Um, well, I mean, obviously you had, uh, I guess your, your basic training, yeah. but then I had basic training, uh, and then the security police Academy, which is down in, uh, San Antonio, Texas at Lackland. I think it's called, it's a joint base now, but the same place where they were, they held basic training. Um, so a security police Academy where they taught us, you know, weapons and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then how to be either. Back then it was, right now, uh, to this day, it's called security forces. Back then it was security police, and you had two different career fields in it. It was a law enforcement specialist and security specialist, and I was uh, on the security specialist side. So I was taught how to respond to um, incidents involving um, uh, like uh, weapon storage areas where they stored either nuclear weapons or other weapons, missiles, and that kind of stuff okay. for aircraft. Uh, priority aircraft, which were considered uh, any uh, nuclear aircraft like B-52 bombers, B-1 bombers, and any other support aircraft uh, like refuelers. Um, so they, they were actually guarded by, um, at, back then, you they guarded them uh, on a footpost, each aircraft. Um, they they all parked in, a, in an area that had a red painted line on the concrete tarmac. Uh, and nobody could cross that line unless they had um, prior announced that they were coming there. Um, and if there was no prior announcement that they were coming, then they got what we called jacked up. <laughs> so they got M16s pointed at them and right. got handcuffed and removed from the area until uh, we could determine why they were there. So, wow. Um, and we, you know, uh, we jacked up some, some maintenance crews that didn't follow the rules uh, at the missile sites, too. Um, or they missed an authentication. So we had to do different authentications uh, with codes. That's why we had a secret clearance. Because um, after you use the code to authenticate, you had to burn the code. 
Um, and uh, so you'd have uh, maintenance crews that would miss their check-in and you'd call them to check in and they don't respond and then it, then it would be a, a response from us. Um, and we'd arrive and, you, you know. Would th- you would think if you were a maintenance crew, yeah, <laughs> you would, I don't know. You would not want an M16 pointed at right. you. And you'd, yeah. you'd think you would, you would, you would pretty much do what you needed yeah. to do yeah. in order to, you know, lengthen your life. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was... I, I wouldn't trade the experience I had. I, I you know, one of the things, uh, you know, I've, I've told people, um, young people who are going in the military, you know, they always tell you not to volunteer for things. Um, and you know, I, I don't think that's sound advice. Um, I would, the, the military offers you uh, a lot of different advantages and you should take advantage of everything they offer you. Um, yeah. and you know, that's one of the things, you know, I, I'll be honest, I was a mama's boy growing up. You know, I wanted to try and stay close to home, even in the military. So they gave us a, a wish list of bases that we wanted to go to, and everything I wished for was on the East Coast. Uh, but about my entire class in the Security Police Academy went to a SAC base, Northern Tier, uh, Wyoming, uh, North South Dakota, uh, upstate New York, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, as soon as I got to Montana, I'm like, you know, I don't really want to be here. Right. Uh, so I, I put in, I went to base admin. I wasn't married yet. Went to base admin, put in, send me anywhere. I don't care. Worldwide remote, get me out of here. Well, what I didn't understand or didn't know at the time was once you're at a SAC base, you're always going to be at a SAC base. Even if you go overseas and you come back to the United States, they're going to put you right back at a SAC base because you have the security clearance and you, you know, you went through the other certifications. So, right. uh, I never got orders out of there until six months before I was going to separate. Uh, I was married, just had a baby and they said, Hey, we got orders for you to go to Greece. It's a one year remote tour. So that means I couldn't take my family. Um, and we want you to extend two more years in the military. And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't think so. Okay, so, so you didn't have no, to do that. No, I didn't okay. have to take it, yeah. Because they were, you know, they were asking me to extend. To extend. Yeah, and I, I wasn't up, up for that. Wow. So. Yeah, I, I regret not going into the military sometimes. I thought yeah. about it. Uh, I think I was too, by the end of high school, I knew what I wanted to do, and I was too driven, and I didn't want to take the time to, to yeah. do it. I, but sometimes I wish I would have. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't change the experience at all. Like I said, the only thing I wish I would have done a little differently is I, I would have tried to take advantage of some opportunities that, that were thrown my way. Um, like when, you know, I was signed up to go in, you go up to the, the MEP station in Harrisburg and you meet with another kind of recruiter and they go over what, you know, career field you want to go in. And uh, he told me to, you know, while you're in basic training – during this week of your basic training, they're going to have tryouts for pararescue and combat controller. And I think you'd be really good for this. And I'm like, eh, you know, whatever. And, you know, I kind of blew it off. Now looking back at it, you know, I, I kind of wish I would have right, at least, it. at least tried that, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm just, I just started reading a book on a combat controller called alone at dawn, I believe. And the name of the soldier, um, escapes me now. But I didn't realize they're they're uh, they're yeah. bad dudes. Yeah, they're you know they're a lot of them are embedded with uh, either SEAL teams or, or other 
uh, special operations unit. Until I picked up this book, I never even heard of them. Yeah. That's what's crazy about it. Yep. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so, you know, it's... And then after I got out, I came back to live with my parents because uh, my wife wanted to move to Florida. I'm like, we can't move to Florida. We got, you know, there's no support system down there. You know, your your parents live in Montana. Mine live in Pennsylvania. You know, we don't know anybody in Florida, so we moved to Pennsylvania. Uh, moved in with my parents. Uh, that was interesting. And, uh, you know... It, it, you know, it's just an interesting dynamic when you're now adults and you have your own child. Right. Um, it's and just, you're living at, yeah, yeah, you're living at home. It's just weird. And, you know, I, I was out of the military collecting unemployment, which drove me absolutely insane, uh, because I wanted to work and, you know, support my family. Cause you've always worked too. Yeah. I, I talking to you before you, you had held a job at 12. Yeah. I was, what uh, was that? well, I was, a I had a paper route. You know, when I, when I was growing up, you know, my, my dad was a a police officer. My mom was a, uh, borough secretary. Uh, they didn't make a lot of money. Um, I'm one of three boys. Um, I'm the oldest, you know, so we went through clothing like crazy, um, cause we were all nuts and food too. Yeah. And food and, and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and you know, it's one of the things that, you know, I talk about, uh, when, when people, try and say I suffer from white privilege. Uh, you know, my parents were not made of money when I grew up. You know, right. my brothers had hand-me-downs. I can remember going shopping at the Goodwill when I was younger. I mean... I remember my mom sewing clothes for, for oh us. Yeah. I, I had two brothers also. Yeah, I, I she sewed patches in my pants. I, I would tear jeans up and she would sew them and sew patches in them and all kinds of stuff. Like yeah. it was, you know, because I was, you know... I we play kickball at recess on blacktop and I'd be sliding, you know, into home plate, you know, that kind of crazy stuff. So, you know, but you know, I wanted to provide for my family. And, uh, so collecting unemployment drove me nuts. Um, but I, I was making more on unemployment here. I thought, you know, I guarded nukes when I was in, you know, the military, I should be able to get out and get a high paying, you know, security job until I become a police officer. Yeah, that doesn't happen. Um, you know, I tried getting a job with, uh, a, you know, uniform security guard company and you're essentially a warm body in a uniform, right. Making minimum wage. And I was making more on unemployment. Um, so I, I actually did that part time for like two weekends and I'm like, yeah, I'm done with this. Uh, and then I got a job as a uh, store detective, uh, for Boscov's department stores. Here in Lancaster? Uh, no, it was in Sinking Spring. Okay. So they had a standalone store. It was called Boscov's West in Sinking Spring back then. So, and in two months, two to three months, they made me manager. So at 22 years old, I was already hiring and firing people, which was a little different. Uh, but helpful. But helpful, yeah. It was just, uh, but I it, I also knew after doing that for a while, it was, I, I enjoyed catching shoplifters. Like it was, you know, it was fun. Um, and, and actually, you know, catching employees who were stealing from the company and all that stuff. Um, but I knew that's not what I wanted to do for the next 20 or 30 years. Right. And, uh, because, you know, retail, it, it, it all depends on the profit and the bottom line. Right. And, you know, cause I would watch the store manager, watch the computers and compare them to the other Boscov stores that, that were owned and to see what the daily profits were. And she would drive herself nuts looking at this stuff. And I'm like, you know, this is an environment I want to work in. So, 
you know, I continued applying for different police jobs um, throughout, you know, the South Central Pennsylvania area. So you pretty much were willing to take whatever yep. department took you. Yeah, and, and it just so happened, I you know, I was running with the fire department at the time, too. You know, as soon as I came back, I joined back up with the fire department. And uh, a buddy of mine um, that I graduated high school with, he was still running with them. And he said, hey, my brother's a, a chef over at this restaurant in uh, Lancaster. And back then it was called Rockney's. It was right on the corner of uh, Orange and Plum. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, back then it was actually a pretty decent restaurant. Uh, it cur- kind of turned into a bad one after that. But uh, he said, hey, my brother says Lancaster City's hiring. And I'm like, oh, really? So I came over and filled out an application in HR. Because, uh, you know, back then you actually had to fill out, you know, a paper application with pen. And, right. uh, and you know, and when I got in there, they were actually looking for firefighters too. So, you know, you could you could check police department or fire department. Did you check both? No, I didn't check both. But I, I was thinking about it. I'm like, man, maybe this, you know, being a fireman would be pretty cool. A uh, paid fireman. Because uh, I enjoyed doing it as a volunteer. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, but I always had my heart set on being a cop. And... Uh, you know, and they, they hired me, you know, I, I took the test, uh, twice scored, uh, high both times. And, uh, it was on the second one that they, they hired me. Um, and I also tested for the state police. Um, but, uh, I tested for them twice as well. And I tested, uh, I think pretty decent if I remember correctly for them. And back then they were under a consent decree. Uh, to hire more minorities. So they actually had two lists, uh, one for white Caucasian, you know, males and one for, for minorities. Uh, never got any further in their process. And then after the second time I tested, uh, I was actually in the academy for Lancaster when I got the call for my oral interview for the state police and I turned them down. How long was the academy for Lancaster City? Probably about four months ish. Okay. I mean, I I got hired on uh my hire date was May 9th and we went to the academy two weeks after that and I graduated I believe August twelfth. So okay. about four months. So obviously you worked several different um positions there in the city, several different uh areas within the department. Um what was your what was your favorite position in the department so i'd say my favorite the jobs i enjoyed the most were i really liked doing the drug work um when i was doing it uh but after about four years i had enough of it right because i was you know how many dirty houses roach infested houses can you go into uh and you know you you walk out feeling like you got stuff crawling all over you. Um, you know, I stripped more than once out in my driveway before I went in the house. Um, plus, I was seeing a lot of the same people all the time. And, uh, you know, then I went to detectives. I, I really enjoyed detectives um, and especially enjoyed uh, investigating homicides and uh, uh, and violent crime. And for some reason, I had a, a knack for uh, identifying pattern crimes uh like uh, you know i did that with a bunch of robberies and stuff like that um and even in patrol i did that with uh some burglaries and um 
you know, so I really enjoyed that stuff. But I, I'd say the the job I enjoyed the most would have been a patrol sergeant. Okay. You know, I just, you know, I got... Was that the rank you enjoyed the most too? Yeah, I would say so. Because you, you were like, you were right there in the middle. And you could really influence an officer's career um, if they if they were willing to put in the work. Um, you could really help them out. And that's what I tried to do. Um, you know, when I was in detectives, I got to a point in detectives that, that I was getting a kind of a really bad attitude. Um, and it was just, you know, once I was able to reflect on it a little bit more, it had to do with post-traumatic stress. Um, but I also saw myself uh, just getting very critical of, uh, like, reports and stuff. And I started, you know, bad-mouthing patrol guys for, you know, why the hell wasn't this in a You know, that kind of stuff. Right. And, you know, I recognized that, you know, that's not a great road to go down. Um, and I was just getting very, um, just cynical. That concludes the first part of my two-part conversation with retired Chief Jared Berkeheiser. I hope you join us next week for the second part where he continues to talk about the ongoing effects the job had on him and some other things he was involved in uh, while he was a police officer holding several different ranks up and including the chief of police with the Lancaster City Bureau of Police. I wanted to take this time again to thank you for your support. Um, If you are interested in just getting uh, exclusive podcast updates and maybe audio teasers of upcoming episodes, make sure you sign up and subscribe for my podcast emails on website. The link to that website will be in the, in the description of this episode. And you can also find that on Facebook. If you go to the Diagnostic Cops Calling Facebook page and click on the Learn More tab, it'll take you to a very elementary website. But on that website, you can sign up for uh, emails uh, that just give you updated information about the podcast and exclusive audio clips, things of that nature that uh, other people are not getting. So I appreciate you for your support. And for those of you in law enforcement, kick up the dust in pursuit of the lawbreaker. Do it. I appreciate you. Till next time.